I was in the late 90s, early 2000s, an associate pastor. I served for five years uh, in two small churches on the south side of Atlanta. And one of those churches, my pastor was a full-time uh, active military. He was a chaplain. And so it was often that I would get a Saturday night phone call that says, I have to leave the country for 16 weeks. You're the pastor. Don't mess this up. <laughs> Guess which books I avoided during those times, right? There was no way I was preaching through Daniel. I wasn't touching the book of Revelation, right? There, there are some of those in Scripture that uh, we just naturally sort of gravitate away from uh, because it's a very serious thing to teach the Word of God. And you and I don't want to accidentally lead our people astray, um, no matter how much we've studied, uh, because sometimes we know that there are certain influences on us uh, that lead us to very particular interpretations. And so I appreciate Dr. Shaddix's prayer and his words this morning that we want to, as uh, best we can, remain faithful uh, to Daniel, and we want to exposit it in a good and correct way, a way that uh, stays very close to the text of Scripture and its intentions uh, for the life and practice of American churches in 2018. Um, so I have here Daniel, remaining faithful, and then, of course, the tagline from the commentary, exalting Jesus in Daniel. So let's talk through uh, the book of Daniel. Um, and then uh, this afternoon, as he said, we'll have Dr. Aiken uh, lead us in expositing part of the book of Daniel as he preaches a sermon through it and then uh, panel discussion later on where you can uh, ask some questions and I'll try to hang back and let them do all the answering. So usually when I'm teaching Daniel, I tell my students, you know, we actually need to start at the start. Uh, and the start for the book of Daniel actually is not the book of Daniel. It's understanding prophecy in the Old Testament. And I tell my students, they can all repeat this phrase to you, all roads in the Old Testament lead to Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament, your Old Testament assumes that you know the book of Deuteronomy. Um, that it, it just should be part of the background information that you bring to every single book. So let's take a look at uh, the nature of prophecy as found in Deuteronomy, and then we'll jump over and see how this works out in Daniel. So we've got two passages in Deuteronomy that apply specifically to this. The first one is Deuteronomy chapter 13. And so let me switch over. Hopefully that's not too tiny. Maybe some of y'all in the back. Uh, but this is Deuteronomy 13, the first five verses. And so it says, I won't read all of it to you, but if someone has dreams, arises among you, and proclaims a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes about, I'm reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, this is uh, the second edition of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And then he says, let us follow other gods which you have not known and let us worship them. Do not listen to the prophet's words or to that dreamer. So as a quick summary, Deuteronomy 13 tells us this. A prophet, or if you think of Isaiah 8 here, or Deborah and Judges, a prophetess, gives a sign or a wonder. And that sign or wonder comes true. But then the message is to follow after another god... That message is false, and so you must purge the evil from your midst. So the two conclusions that you and I can draw from Deuteronomy 13 are that a prophet must prophesy something that comes to pass as a confirmation. The sign or wonder must confirm them as a prophet. And then their message must align with Scripture. Now, of course, if we're only talking Old Testament here, which you and I are at the moment... Um, then that would mean it has to align with the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Remember Joshua, later in the book of Joshua says, and Joshua wrote these things in a book of the law. So there is, uh, there is this book of Moses that exists in Joshua's day. You and I know that it gets added to. Josiah, of course, finds the law. Ezra, when they come back, calls for all of the scrolls. It doesn't name those, but then they read the law over the people from day until night. Everyone weeps in its hearing. And so across the Old Testament, there's this building corpus that leads up to all of these scrolls that Ezra has that is the Old Testament. And so the message has to align with that. If the message doesn't align with what Israel knows to be right and true scripture, you don't listen to it. All right, so Deuteronomy 18 is the second passage. 
We'll jump over there. So Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses talking, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb, that is, at Mount Sinai, when the people said, let us not hear God's voice anymore, right? He says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command. I will hold him accountable, whoever does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name. But the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded, or who speaks of other gods, that prophet must die. And so you might say to yourself, how can we recognize a, pro- a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name, the message does not come true or is not fulfilled. That is a message the Lord has not spoken. So, if we jump back over... So in Deuteronomy 18, we get essentially the same two things. They're given in a slightly different order. When the prophet speaks, the thing will come true, the sign or the wonder that you saw in Deuteronomy 13. Otherwise, you don't have to fear that prophet. However, if it does come true, and you don't listen to the prophet, then God will require it of you. So the two conclusions for this one, it has to be a correct message from God. We already mentioned this. According to the law of the prophets, the writings, that is the scripture, Old Testament, And it had to be confirmed by actually taking place. All right, that confirmation is actually key. It's in both spots in Deuteronomy. It's in 13 and 18. So what I would suggest is that whenever you and I come to prophecy in the Old Testament, if the only thing we do is look for a New Testament, or a yet-to-come, still future fulfilling of that prophecy, we might not be playing by the rules of the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament said that the prophet had to do something that would come true and confirm them as a prophet. Then they had to speak a message according to Scripture. And so what I would encourage you, especially when we get to a book like Daniel, is don't take everything in the book and immediately cut on the afterburners and go looking for an answer that's going to come about in 3060 AD. It could be Daniel speaking about some things in his own day and age, which I think you and I will see. But we do want to ask the question, what are those future things that Daniel speaks about? Because if Daniel's confirmed as a prophet, he can speak about things that are yet to come. And we should listen to those things and believe those things and act accordingly. And so hopefully we'll see that as we work through Daniel. So with that basis in mind, now let's talk about how in the world do we handle Daniel. So some really quick hermeneutical principles. Most of y'all will notice the, uh, recognize the first three of these. This is sort of standard hermeneutics. Uh, This is scripture, history, and theology. And so let's, let's take a moment and briefly talk about those, and then we'll talk about the two that I have at the bottom there. Uh, so first of all, this one's the big obvious one in the room, right? Use the text of Scripture. Use Scripture. Listen, commentaries are wonderful. Our whole discussion today is based off of the exposition series and commentaries, which is on that screen, not on these screens. Um, they are great. But if your prep time spends more time in commentaries and not in the text of Daniel, you may have that out of order. So spend time in the text of the Bible, camp out in the text of the Bible. Always ask yourself, am I sticking with the text of Scripture? And we all do this. So think here for a moment about Charles Spurgeon, right? The prince of pastors, wonderful guy. For those of you who have read his sermons, though, you know that even Spurgeon sometimes would pick a text, and Joseph leaned upon his staff and worshipped. And the very next passage, or the very next chapter, or the, the very next paragraph, is, now Jesus, dot, dot, dot. And sometimes, even with Spurgeon, you have to kind of step back and go, hang on, how did we get from there to there? It's perfectly okay to use Scripture as a jumping off point. But you just want to ask yourself, is that all that I'm doing? Am I only coming to a particular text in Daniel and then leaping to something else that I want to get to? 
So just always pause for a second and ask yourself, am I hugging the text of Daniel? Am I staying right here with this text? So I know that one's uh, pretty obvious. All right, history. Two things we want to talk about in history. Uh, The first one of those is we want to talk about the time of Daniel. So what's going on in this time period in our Old Testament? Um, Most of you will know Daniel actually covers a fairly uh, large swath of our Old Testament time period. Um, This, of course, leads to a a few problems. Uh, Some people have suggested that the end of Daniel can't actually be Daniel. Uh, It has to be somebody who has added on to that. Um, I would point back to what we just talked about with prophecy, that a prophet does something to confirm themselves, then they can speak of things that will come in the far future, and we can believe those things because they've already been confirmed as a prophet of God. We'll see that with Daniel this morning. Um, But at the end of the book of Daniel, uh, we have Daniel serving under the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. That then slides into the Medo-Persian Empire. If you think about your uh, Western Civ class, I know for some of us it's been a few years since we've sat in Western Civ. Um, But uh, the Babylonians are eventually conquered by the Medes and the Persians coming together. So Daniel serves under that time period as well. Ultimately, the Persian kings will overthrow the Medes, um, and Persia will reign supreme as the great nation in the ancient Near East. Um, If you want to think about biblical books, uh, this is going to line up with the time period of Esther. This is going to line up with the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, uh, This is uh, probably going to be uh, the very end of Chronicles, where you have the Edict of Cyrus. Um, This is probably going to be some of your post-exilic prophets. Uh, So prophets like uh, Malachi and Zechariah. Uh, So if we go to the Bible and if we look at these other places, we can build a pretty good picture of what is the state of Israel. That is Israel that has come back together living in the land. What are their struggles? What are the theological concerns going on at that particular point in time? Uh, But we can also go to Esther and we can say, well, what's going on to Israelites that are still living in the exile? They're not back home in Israel. And so we can use the Bible to build a a pretty good understanding of what's going on at the point in time of Daniel. The other history that you and I want to consider is we want to consider the history of interpretation. And this is where commentaries are tremendously helpful. How has the church for the past 2,000 years understood certain passages in Daniel? Um, I wrote a a wonderful paper. I thought it was a wonderful paper anyway. (laughs) For uh, Dr. Mark Rooker. Um, On Ecclesiastes, I picked three words out of a verse. I wrote 40 pages plus a bibliography. You know, I was going to knock this one out of the park. Um, And uh, Dr. Rooker came back and he said, you know, uh, really well done. You you get the A, you know, great job. Um, I'm a little concerned, though, because in part of your line of argument, you're arguing something and you actually say, nobody else has ever said this on this particular passage. Jerry, you might think about the fact, but nobody else has ever said this on this particular passage. And I was like, but I'm right. right? <laughs> so uh, one, of the, one of the good things that extra education and extra time in the Word and spending time around brothers does for us is uh, somebody sometimes helpfully says, hey, if you're the only person that's ever said this, maybe you should pause and think about that. So the history of interpretation, run to the commentaries and saying, how has the church understood the book of Daniel and what's going on here? I can be incredibly helpful. So theology, of course, uh, your Old Testament theology, we've already mentioned theology that's going on in the other minor prophets at the time uh, that's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, obviously, you and I have the whole canon of Scripture. We don't just have to camp out in the Old Testament and try to play fairly um, in you know, whatever time period this lands in. You and I do have the New Testament. You and I have a full understanding of those things like uh, Christ, who is the second member of the Trinity, the coming of the Holy Spirit, resurrection of the dead, which is definitely mentioned in Daniel, but obviously in the Gospels, they're still not clear on this because they're having an argument with Jesus at one point about, you know, is there really a resurrection of the dead or not, trying to trap Jesus. Uh, so you and I have the whole canon of Scripture that we can bring to bear on Daniel. All right, symbolism. So we gotta, we got to talk about a couple of negative ones. Um, A lot of times what happens, especially in the book of Daniel, uh, a little bit in the book of Ezekiel, um, and if we're talking New Testament, book of Revelation, immediately what happens is everybody runs to symbolism, and they say things like, this is symbolic of dot, dot, dot. 
I just want to caution you to be careful with symbolism. That's why it's in red with several exclamation points there. So in very much layman's terms, so I'm not pulling this from Merriam-Webster's dictionary um, or any sociological sources, but in layman's terms, symbolism usually requires one of two things. It requires a collective consciousness from a culture. So if I say to you, what are the symbols that represent America? Most of you would say the American flag, the bald eagle. You can probably come up with others that I didn't just name. Because you and I are Americans. Now let's say that we pick up right now and we move this whole conference this morning to Beijing, China. Eastern China, very affluent, access to education, multicultural we stop your average Chinese person on the street and we say, why is the American bald eagle the symbol of America? Do you think they'll be able to answer it? Probably not. The symbolism doesn't mean the same thing in their culture. And you say, but wait a minute. Aren't there symbols that are super cultural? Aren't there those things that transcend cultures that are still symbolic? Sure there are. Think about the hero's quest, right? The, the young hero has to go on a quest. He's aided by his companions. At some point, he has supernatural intervention. And some of y'all are thinking, he must be talking about the Odyssey, right? That great work of Greek literature. I, actually, I was talking about Star Wars because I'm a kid of the 70s and 80s, right? It was Luke Skywalker, right? But could we take that same analogy and could we go to um, uh, any of the old Norse stories that J.R. Tolkien based the Lord of the Rings trilogy off of. Sure, they have a hero's quest. Could we go back to Beijing? Could we say, listen, in Chinese literature, do you have something like the hero's quest where the young hero has to go on a journey? And they would say, sure. But in order for that symbol to be symbolic across culturals, it has to be very generic. And it has to be something that's in the collective background of all of us, like the hero's quest, uh, the search for knowledge, all of these types of things. So I say be very careful with symbolism that you and I are not interpreting part of Daniel based on an American understanding of symbols in 2018 America. And we'll actually come to, we'll, we'll come right back to this with the very next point. Uh, but just be careful with symbolism. I'm, I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying be very careful in your use of it. All right, next one. This one is intentionally struck through because I don't want you to do this one. So it's on here, but it's on here as a clear, like, don't do this. And that is current political climate and pop culture. Don't interpret Daniel according to current political climates or pop culture. So August 1994, I'm a college freshman, early college freshman. We were on the quarter system, so I'd been there for a few weeks. Um, and uh, I got saved. Wasn't raised in a church, wasn't brought up in a church. Um, I would say I have parents who were definitely God-fearers, um, but, uh, but no religious background whatsoever. I would have claimed at the time to be an atheist. So I get saved. I come into a local Baptist church. I actually get saved at a revival. Uh, so I, those actually do still happen, and people still get saved, at least in 1994. Um, and so, uh, so I joined this local small Baptist church, Mill Village Baptist Church, south side of Atlanta. And a wonderful, wonderful pastor, wonderful congregation who loved me, who uh, helped me, um, who, uh, you know, helped me understand what God was doing in my life. Um, but as you can imagine, 1994, any sermon that I heard on Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation, who was the bad guy? Russia. Russia was the bad guy. And it was clear to everybody who read that, this was Russia. Of course, the only problem was this was 1994, right? So the Berlin Wall had come down in 89. Uh, the Soviet Union had uh, begun to collapse. Mikhail Gorbachev has elected the first president in 1992. And so I was hearing all of these sermons, and you could easily pick up a book that interpreted Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation in that way. And so what everybody told me was, don't be fooled 
by the current political climate. One day Russia will rise again because the northern army that causes all of the problems is Russia, period, right at the end of that sentence. Fast forward to 2008. 2008, uh, I've been working here at Southeastern for five years. I'm hired as an adjunct. I get to teach college students. And I'm showing them in 2008 all of these old books who are endorsed by wonderful people, written by wonderful people, and they're interpreting the Old Testament this way. And I'm cautioning my students, and I'm saying, you know, listen, this comes out of a situation with the Cold War where they were the big enemy. They had uh, the nuclear arsenal that matched America, and at any moment we thought they were going to push the button, and that was going to be Armageddon. It was going to be the end of the world. But this is why we don't let that drive our interpretation of Scripture, especially on something that talks about what will happen in the far future. So in 2008, that goes fairly well. Fast forward to 2018. So I stand in my Old Testament class. We talk about Ezekiel. We talk about Daniel. I don't teach on Revelation. I leave that to New Testament professors. And I say, be careful about current political climate because it used to be that everyone said Russia was going to be the chief bad guy. And all my students go, but Dr. Lasseter, isn't Russia... Cur- I mean, yeah, I know, I know, right? So Russia is uh, on the rise again as a world superpower. Uh, they recently tested a missile. They've, uh, you know, taken back part of the Crimean Peninsula, all of those sorts of things. Again, I would just caution us, right? Be careful, because just in my lifetime, we've seen sort of this wave of let's interpret it this way, okay, maybe that wasn't correct, let's interpret it this way, maybe this was correct. The Bible and our interpretation of the Bible isn't swayed by those things. And so I would say at this point, let's go back to the top of the list. Make sure that it's driven by the text of Scripture. Make sure it's driven by historical understanding of what's going on with Daniel and the history of interpretation. Make sure it's driven by our theology. Let those things be the foundation of how we read and how we understand this book. And then humbly, let's say, this seems to be what this is pointing towards in the far future. But I could be wrong. Because truth is, we just don't know. All right, so now that we've laid a foundation, let's you and I talk about the actual book. So enough enough foundational stuff. Let's get to the actual meat of this. In our English Bibles, Daniel is one of the four major prophets. He's right there with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you have the minor prophets. Nobody can remember all of the minor prophets, so we'll just call them the twelve. Well, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are fairly easy to outline. They all follow some pattern of sin, punishment, restoration. So think here of all those passages that you've read in the major prophets. Woe to you, Babylon. Woe to you, Thyatira. Woe to you, Israel. Woe to you, Ephraim. Woe to you, Judah. Right? Passage after passage where we detail sin. Think here about Isaiah chapter 1. Right? That great insult. The ox knows its master. The donkey a far more stubborn animal, knows its manger. But Israel does not know the Lord. My people do not understand. So it's a great indictment against Israel at the time uh, that they were worse than a donkey. You can, you can fill in a different word for a donkey there if you want to. Uh, but that's what God was saying of his own people. right? So it's easy to go to those and find sin. It's easy to find punishment. Right? Remember the great symbolism in Ezekiel. God tells Ezekiel, cut your hair. For a third of your hair, take it and chop it up with a sword, because that's what's going to happen to my people. For another third of your hair, burn it with fire, because that's what's going to happen with my people. But with the final third, bind it up and save it as a remnant inside your cloak. So there would be punishment on the sins of not just God's own people, but of course the nations that were around them as well. And there are those great restoration passages, right? So uh, the stone that becomes a mountain in Isaiah, which we'll talk about because I think that intersects with Daniel, um, that all the nations come to and worship the Lord. In Jeremiah, of course, you have the promise of a new covenant that God would give to all of his people. 
In Ezekiel, there is the temple where everyone comes to worship. Then we come to the book of Daniel. And guess what Daniel is not about? Sin, restoration, and punishment. So we run headlong into Daniel and we go, you know, the very pattern that I've been applying to these prophets so far just doesn't seem to fit here. Most of your commentaries that you run to will divide Daniel into uh, two sections. They will say that Daniel chapters 1 through 6 that you see there are really about Daniel's personal experiences. Or if you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three companions, they get a whole chapter. It's their personal experience. That really communicate to us faithfulness, that is, faithfulness to Yahweh, to the Lord, in spite of circumstances. All of those chapters are fairly easy compared to Daniel chapter 7. It's a beast. Come on, that was a joke. All right, all right, there we go. All of those are fairly easy compared to Daniel chapter 7 through 12, which really are the collection of visions. Uh, these are usually what give us the most trouble uh, in the book of Daniel. Um, but I would commend to you, as you're reading through those chapters, notice how much those chapters call us to trust in God. Daniel himself becomes the very mouthpiece that you and I are when we're reading it. When he says in those chapters, I kept all these things in my heart and it troubled me greatly. A lot of times you and I read Daniel chapters 7 through 12 and, and they trouble us greatly. But the wonderful message that comes out of those is trust God. We'll, we'll see that in more detail. So... Uh, we probably don't have enough time this morning to walk through every one of them, but I wanted to pull out some representative uh, chapters and take a look at those and uh, help you as you're thinking through these. Most of you are familiar with Daniel chapter 1. Let's pull this up over here. This is the uh, famous passage where Daniel rejects the king's food. And so I want to point out to you verse 8, because in this whole chapter, verse 8 is a fairly key verse. And as y'all know, there have been whole books written on this. Um, there are denominations within Christianity that believe that we should follow all of the food laws of the Old Testament because they're just good and helpful and beneficial to us. I'm from Georgia, so if you ask me to give up barbecue and fried catfish, it probably will not happen. I'm just saying. Um, but I want to, again, hug the text of Scripture. Why won't Daniel eat the king's food? Verse 8 tells us, He determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. This is probably hearkening back to Leviticus 11.47 amongst other passages. But this is where eating food in the law that you're commanded not to eat will defile you. And so this is probably what Daniel's basing it off of. Now think about the broader context of chapter 1 for a moment. So Daniel has been selected and he's, brought, he's been brought in as a young man uh, to be trained in the service of the king. Now if you and I are in exile, this probably is not a bad gig. Right? So... They break down the wall of southeastern, this beautiful rock wall we have surrounding us. They come in, they capture all of us, they haul us off into some exile somewhere on some made-up country. And you and I are now the forced labor for another group of people. And they come to this front table, and we'll pick on you four guys, and they say, except you four. The rest of y'all are going to go make bricks and you're going to build stuff. But you four, we're going to bring you in, and we're going to train you to be advisors to the king. And we're going to give you the king's choice food. What are you all getting? Water. Maybe. You're sharing it with the camels. Sorry. Right? But you get the choice food. So the context here is this is not a bad thing. This is probably a good thing. This was like the rest of us are probably clamoring going, hey, I'm actually wiser than this guy over here. Like put me in that group, right? Let him make straw. But notice what Daniel does. Daniel sticks to his convictions and he says that he won't defile himself. So maybe a, a good modern day comparison to this. You all know Dr. Aiken, 
Uh, you have all heard his stance on alcohol, um, that even if you could make an argument that it is allowable, he would ask the question, but doesn't this fall under Paul that what is allowable may not be beneficial? That this might damage the weaker brother? That contextually is it a good idea um, where you're serving as a minister of the gospel, right? So imagine Dr. Aiken is in Italy. And a restaurant owner, we're all sitting in a restaurant, a restaurant owner wants to come over and he wants to honor Dr. Shaddix because he knows Dr. Aiken is Dr. Shaddix's boss. And so he wants to show his friend an extra measure of, um, maybe we would say grace, an extra measure of uh, this is a good man to make Jim look good in front of his boss. So he brings out a bottle of wine and he's going to pour a glass of wine for everybody. What do y'all think Dr. Aiken's going to do? He's going to say, I, I can't drink that. I appreciate you showing honor to my employee. I understand culturally in Italy this is what you would do. But I can't drink that. I am quite certain that is what the president would do uh, because I've heard him talk about this multiple occasions. It's not a bad context. It's not a bad situation. But because of his convictions, he refuses to do something. I would suggest that's exactly what's going on in Daniel chapter 1. He's not being forced to do something. This is not bad. We'll see plenty of those. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't bow down and worship the statue, you get tossed in the furnace. Bad situation. Not a bad situation here. And so I would suggest in chapter 1 that 8 actually key, that we need to take a little bit of time and we need to unpack what defile means and then once we do that, we need to help communicate that to our congregations and help them to see that this is greater than just we should all be vegetarians, which plenty of people argue that based on Daniel chapter 1. I would say, see Peter, we're allowed to eat catfish. But key, as we're hugging the scripture, would be Daniel did this so as not to defile himself. All right, what about chapter 2? Most of you who've read Daniel chapter 2, you know that this actually seems to fit better with chapter 7 through 12. Uh, that this is a very much a visionary passage. In fact, it's Nebuchadnezzar who has a dream. He calls in all the wise people and he says, I need you to interpret the dream. Catch this. This is a, a brilliant move. I love it. And so the people say, sure, tell us your dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, no, no, no. Right? If y'all are really the wise people... You tell me my dream and then tell me the interpretation, right? You got to be thinking, old Uncle Nezzy's sitting back on the throne at this point. And he's like, I got all you suckers, right? Are, we're going to find out who's really wise and who's not. So what does Daniel do? Daniel, of course, runs to God. And he prays and he cries out to God and he says, you know, help me. And then he comes back in and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, this is the dream that you've had. And here is its interpretation. Right? But when he gives the interpretation, he says very clearly in the text there, this is what Yahweh says the interpretation is. So you notice, I give you the point here, Daniel runs and he seeks God. In the midst of explaining the dream, he gives glory to God. And what does this do for us in the book of Daniel? It's the sign or the wonder. So Daniel has now confirmed himself as a prophet. Because he told Nebuchadnezzar his own dream, and then he interpreted it. So for you and I who are reading the book, Daniel is now confirmed according to Deuteronomy 13 and 18. So when Daniel speaks of future things that are yet to come, you and I had better listen. Because Daniel's clearly a prophet from the Lord. Alright, so what about Jesus? Well, chapter 2 is an excellent place. And in fact, maybe even one of the easiest in all of the book of Daniel to bring Jesus into this. Because what happens in the vision? This stone is cut out of a mountain. And it grows and it crushes all the other kingdoms till it becomes the one kingdom that lasts forever and ever. This isn't only in the book of Daniel though. Psalm 118, there is a stone that the builders will reject and it becomes the chief cornerstone course, quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah 8, there is a rock that makes all the other nations fall. In Isaiah 28, they will lay a stone in Zion, 
that will grow into a mountain where all the people come and worship. So there is a, if you don't mind me saying it this way, a stone or a rock theology just in the Old Testament. Then you and I jump over to New Testament. In Matthew chapter 21, there's the stone that falls on and crushes, and that stone is Jesus. In 1 Peter, 1 Peter actually exegetes Isaiah chapter 8. So just in case there was any still much understanding of what Isaiah chapter 8 was talking about, 1 Peter chapter 2 goes back and makes it clear for us that that stone is Jesus. Now does that mean, I'm going to go back a slide, does that mean in Daniel chapter 2 that when Daniel delivered this message to the king, everybody in the room was sitting back going, wow. Yahweh is actually the triune God and the second member of the Trinity, even though it doesn't say his name here, is going to come and die and be buried and raised again. Probably not. If anybody got that in the room, it had to be Yahweh that was speaking to them, right? But again, you and I have the full canon of Scripture. We have all of it. And so you and I now know and can say with certainty that that's exactly what the stone is talking about in Daniel chapter 2, because we have all these other great passages in the Old Testament. We have lots of passages in the New Testament that come back and clear this up for us. So you want an easy jump to Jesus from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 is it. He's the stone that will crush all the other nations. And his kingdom will endure forever and ever and ever. Indeed, that began to be fulfilled the moment Christ died on the cross and was buried and rose again, it will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus comes back with ten thousands upon ten thousands, which Revelation tells us he will do. Notice what happens at the end of chapter 2, though. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God. Now, I would not say, I'm going to use New Testament language for a second, I would not say in any way that Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. Why wouldn't I say that? Because in a few chapters, there's going to be the vision of the tree. And once again, Daniel's going to confront Nebuchadnezzar and say, listen, you've grown prideful. Yahweh set you up and gave you dominion and power over all the nations of the earth. You were the biggest kingdom on earth. But instead of doing Yahweh's will, you've done your own. And so he's going to take you out. And you're going to go live like a beast in the field. And sure enough, that's what happens to Daniel. And a chapter of Daniel, that's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And a chapter later... Nebuchadnezzar is completely out of the picture and his son is ruling on the throne. So even though Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God, I would not say in any way that Nebuchadnezzar gets saved in Daniel chapter 2. So when you think about these first six chapters, and we could go on, y'all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, when you think about these first six chapters... Notice here over and over again how much they emphasize these three themes or these points that you see here. First of all, Daniel holds to his convictions. You see this in positive situations like chapter 1. You see this in negative situations like the other ones that are spelled out in these chapters. Daniel believes and trusts God above all else. Think about it for a second. If you could pick any world leader, I won't name names, just think of one in your head, anyone you want, and you could confront them over their sin, how hard would that be? In all honesty, right? I know, I know sometimes you and I get a little bit prideful and we're like, man, I would love person X to get to explain to them what they're doing wrong with their life. But in all honesty, you put on the advisory council of pick a country. Oman, Yemen, China, North Korea, America. And you have to serve every day with them. And you're given the opportunity to confront them. How difficult would that actually be? But Daniel does it. Because he believes and he trusts God above all else. Notice, not only does Daniel hold to his convictions, but Daniel acts according to his beliefs. One of the things that happens, happens a lot in our churches, is 
we have a stated belief about something. But then we have actual practice. And unfortunately, sometimes those two things don't line up in our churches. In Daniel, especially in these first six chapters, those things line up again and again and again, even though it might cost Daniel greatly, even though it should have cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their lives. Remember the statement that they make in that chapter, even if our God does not save us, we still will not bow down. If this cost us our life, throw us in the furnace. Stated belief, actual practice. Right? So those things line up in the book of Daniel. All right, so how about these later chapters that uh, can be a little more difficult where we have uh, visions, signs, wonders, things that are difficult to understand? Let me jump over to Daniel chapter 11 really quickly. So Daniel chapter 11, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he has established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled, and because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. So when you and I dig through commentaries, it's fairly, easily, it's fairly easy in commentaries to find explanations of this uh, that range in what this passage means. More recently, let's say 1990s forward in commentaries, there's been general agreement that these are the last kings in Persia that this uh, warrior king who comes up out of Greece is Alexander the Great. And that this prophesies the division of his kingdom to his four generals, not to his descendants. And as we all know, there was one general who rose up above the other three and took over. In fact, I pulled out of uh, B&H's Old Testament commentary. Uh, this is Dr. Eugene Merrill from The Word in the World. This is what he says. Uh, Daniel saw a final vision detailing the affairs of nations that would spring from Greece, the four vestigial remnants of Alexander's empire. The focus was on the king of the south and the king of the north, who were the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And so if we go back and we read, notice the, the very next section here. Uh, the king of the north, the king of the south, so on and so forth. So what Dr. Merrill is doing which I think is wonderful, by the way. I think this is a good thing. What Dr. Merrill is doing is he's saying, okay, when we read this in Daniel, let's try to be fair to what's going on around Daniel or the near, not super distant future to Daniel. Does the text of Scripture seem to line up with those things? It seems to. So at some point, this range of explanations on Daniel 11 that you and I can go find if we just randomly pull commentaries off a shelf, Dr. Merrill tries to rein that in a little bit and say, hey, but let's be fair to Daniel or to the near future of Daniel. But you and I have to ask the question, if we keep reading, though, aren't there parts of Daniel chapter 11 that just don't quite seem to line up with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids? Absolutely. So now we have this question of what do we do with that? What do we do when the range of commentary says it could be this or it could be that or it could be this or it could be that? It's a great question. What I would suggest to you is, especially in Old Testament prophecy, we see a lot of times that things are fulfilled, lowercase f, but not fulfilled, all uppercase. We see a lot of times that things begin to be fulfilled and are not fulfilled completely. 
So great example here. Most of you know Ezekiel chapter 37, right? This is the dry bones passage. Everybody familiar with the dry bones in Ezekiel? Yep. Everybody preached the dry bones in Ezekiel? So yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament. It's a great one to preach. A lot of times, though, we don't preach the second half. We miss it. So right after the dry bones passage, Ezekiel is to take a stick and write on one side of it, Judah, and write on the other side, Israel. It also uses Ephraim and uh, one of the other names. And then he's to bind that stick back together. So he's to prophesy that Israel and Judah will come back together. Now, does that ever happen in the Old Testament? Seems to, because Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles all detail the coming back together from all of the various areas in the ancient Near East back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to reestablish the temple. But we have to ask, but wait a minute, is that all that it meant? Was that it? Is it fulfilled back there in the Old Testament? No, because Ezekiel 37 goes on to paint a picture of an idyllic world. That certainly doesn't fit. And you and I know that by the time we get to 70 AD, the temple's destroyed. So what I would suggest to you here is you've got a situation in Ezekiel where it begins to be fulfilled in the Old Testament. It's ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament church where not just Israelite and Judahite can come together and be the people of God again, but so can all the rest of us pagans. And thank goodness, because I'm not an Israelite in my background. Other places that you see this in the Old Testament. In the Minor Prophets, you have the Day of the Lord. Featured heavily in Joel, this will be a great day, a great day of darkness, a day of earthquakes. It's featured in Amos. It'll be a day of the Lord when it's like running from a lion and running into a bear. The problem is, in all of the day of the Lord passages, happens in Hosea as well, other minor prophets. In all the day of the Lord passages, they're talking about a specific day. And remember, they're spread from very early minor prophet. I would actually count Joel amongst the earliest prophets, to the latest prophets, Malachi and Zechariah. They each have a day of the Lord. And so they're talking about individual day of the Lord, lowercase d, in their books. But don't they point to a greater day of the Lord? Have you ever noticed when you're reading in the Gospels, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it's dark, the sun's blotted out, there's an earthquake. Have you ever caught how much of that language looks exactly like the language in the prophets of the day of the Lord? Indeed, I would argue Christ dying on the cross was a day of the Lord. Now, I would, I would tend to make that a capital D-A-Y, fulfilled. This was the day of the Lord. But you and I know, because we have the whole canon of Scripture, there's still another day of the Lord coming. And that is in the book of Revelation. When all of God's enemies are gathered to meet him, and God puts them down once and for all. So is it fulfilled in Christ? Absolutely it is. Is there still something of the day of the Lord to be fulfilled? Sure, because you and I know it's coming in the book of Revelation. So again, you have here in the Old Testament, were those days of the Lord fulfilled in Joel's time, in Amos' time, in Hosea's time, so on and so forth? Yes. They set us up. They prefigured a coming day of the Lord and a still yet coming day of the Lord. So, what do you and I do with this in Daniel? Again, I say we go back to, we hold to those things that we believe with certainty we can hold to. I agree with Dr. Merrill. It looks like at the beginning of this, we're predicting the coming of Alexander the Great and the dividing of his kingdom. That then goes into a discussion of the northern and southern kingdoms which doesn't look a whole lot like the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So what do we do with that? That's where we jump over to probably the book of Revelation, and we say, it looks like there's still a coming northern army. I don't know who it is. I'm not going to assign it to a current country in this world that will come and make war against God. But this is where, once again, Daniel is tremendously helpful. Back in Daniel chapter 7. 
As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. This is what I was saying earlier when we started. I think sometimes in Daniel, you and I can read this verse and we can, we can identify with it. I'm not sure how to rightly interpret every single piece of Daniel and make it absolutely clear what is coming. Keep reading. So of this evil king, the court will convene. His dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, the dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under all heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey Him. Revelation expresses this, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I may not be able to say with certainty this nation in the world in 2018 will push the nuclear button and start Armageddon. But what I can say is, even though some of these predictions distress me and cause me to think, God, when is all of this going to happen? How is all of this going to happen? I can trust God. Remember the point of Daniel chapter 7 through Daniel chapter 12. I can trust God that ultimately the kingdom will be given to the Most High and it will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey him. And so what I would do is you are teaching through Daniel in your churches. I would identify very much with your people and I would say some of this is troubling. But you and I don't trust in northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms. We don't trust in the uh, American military and its might. Uh, Deuteronomy has warned since the very beginning not to trust in military might. Uh, you and I trust in the most high. And that's where we find our security. Come what may. So Daniel 7 through 12 seem to get to that.